Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, the justices will hear arguments dealing with the opioid crisis. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports the issue involves the $6 billion bankruptcy settlement that frees the Sackler family from further liability. The Sackler family has been intimately involved in everything that Purdue Pharma did to aggressively and deceptively market the painkiller OxyContin. All three of the Sackler brothers who bought Purdue and ultimately developed OxyContin were doctors, and six Sacklers sat on the company board, including the chairman, Richard Sackler, who closely directed the company's deceitful marketing strategy. But when the OxyContin scandal blew up and the company pled guilty to three criminal charges, only the company filed for bankruptcy. The Sacklers contributed $6 billion in exchange for being released from any further liability. But because they did not file for bankruptcy, they were allowed to keep more than half of their wealth. The question today is whether the bankruptcy court had the authority to approve such a release for the Sacklers from future lawsuits. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. There's been more fighting in Gaza between the Israeli military and Hamas militants. The Israeli military is warning Palestinian civilians to move out of a neighborhood in southern Gaza. Tens of thousands of Palestinians had fled there after the Israeli military told them to evacuate northern Gaza for safety. Israel is now bombing certain neighborhoods in southern Gaza. NPR's Brian Mann says shelters are overcrowded and many Palestinians are falling sick. The World Health Organization is really worried about this. They've documented more than 35,000 cases of diarrhea among very young children under the age of five. There's a huge spike of cases of severe respiratory illness. And for the two plus million Palestinians there, it's just difficult now to find clean drinking water and hygiene is nearly impossible. And for now, there's really no relief in sight. NPR's Brian Mann reporting. Last week, the U.S. government reported the country's gross domestic product grew at an annual rate of 5.2 percent in the third quarter of this year. But Steve Beckner reports a November survey from the National Association for Business Economics shows a less robust outlook for next year. The business economists remain fairly optimistic. Three-fourths of them put low odds on the economy going into a recession as the Federal Reserve fights inflation with high interest rates. But they do forecast growth will slow to 1% in the coming year. NABE President Ellen Zintner says members expect a higher unemployment rate, but that most believe it will stay below 5%. The economists expect less inflation, but doubt it will fall to the Fed's 2% target. Nonetheless, they think the central bank will start cutting interest rates in the new year. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill will try again today to pass a $3 billion supplemental budget. Republican lawmakers have used procedural measures to block three votes since last Thursday. The key sticking point is how $250 million for the state's emergency shelter system will be spent. Mass GOP Chair Amy Carnavale tells WCVBs on the record she supports the moves by Republicans. The migrant shelter crisis is unsustainable and we need systematic reforms. So I really applaud our Republican leadership in the House and Senate uh, for standing up to this 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 broken process to demand accountability. The moves have taken place during informal sessions where there are fewer lawmakers than normal. Democrats hope to have enough members on Beacon Hill today to prevent another block by Republicans.
At the Westover Air Reserve Base in Chicopee, crews will be flying additional missions in the coming months. Alden Bourne explains why. More than 140 reservists will support five new flying missions of the giant C-5 cargo planes on an ongoing basis. They will be joined in Chicopee by about 25 reservists from Dover Air Base in Delaware. Rodney Furr is Chief of Public Affairs at Westover. We are picking up the workload of the C-17 aircraft. The C-17 missions can be tasked for other support with other events going on in the world. The C-17 has the capability to fly into an unimproved runway, whereas the C-5 cannot. First, says the crews could fly both domestically and internationally. The call-up and missions are scheduled for 90 days, but first says both could be extended beyond that. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The Boston City Council today considers a ban on the sale of guinea pigs in pet shops. In 2016, the city adopted a rule prohibiting similar sales of dogs, cats, and rabbits, but guinea pigs were left off the list. Shelters in the state have since reported taking in a growing number of the animals. Communities, including Cambridge and Attleboro, have already banned the sale of guinea pigs. A heads-up for T-Riders this morning. Shuttle buses are replacing trains right now between Leechmere and Union Square. The T says that's because of a signal problem near Leechmere. And on the Orange Line, there are delays of about 10 minutes because of a train with a mechanical problem at Molden Center. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. The Patriots' record is now a dismal 2-10. and 10. They lost to the L.A. Chargers yesterday in Foxborough 6-0. The Pats will visit the Pittsburgh Steelers this Thursday. The Bruins topped the Columbus Blue Jackets 3-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees are now off until Thursday. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Indiana Pacers. The game is the quarterfinal of the in-season tournament. Morning fog will clear out soon. It'll be mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s today. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 30s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. Good morning. We're in our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR. We're in the final stretch. It ends at the end of the day on Wednesday, and we still have to bring in 
45% of our goal in order to end where we need to be to continue this important community service into the new year at the level you expect. We're reminding you to include WBUR in your year-end giving because you rely on us throughout the year for the news and companionship that keeps you connected to your community and keeps your community informed at a time where it is so important to know what's going on. You want to know about things coming up this hour. We're going to tell you about the Kennedy Center Honors. There's going to be great music from Beyonce because it's important to have a mix in your morning so you're not weighed down by the news and you also know some of the fun things that are going on. There's going to be a conversation about the White House's support for a two-state solution in the Mideast and news about the historic sites in Gaza at risk during the current conflict. We know you value all of that. We need you to support it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, joined this morning by Jay Clayton. And you know, you're going to be asked to support a lot of worthy organizations this time of year. We hope you will include WBUR among them for the stories that foster understanding, deeper understanding across our community, including one from Deb Becker. She followed a Medway family that was trapped in Gaza for 27 days following Hamas' attack on Israel. Let's listen. The war between Israel and Hamas has reverberated throughout the world, and here in Massachusetts, WBUR learned about a local family trapped in Gaza because of the fighting. We reached out to Wafa Abu Zeda, whose family was visiting relatives in Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel, and we asked how she was trying to stay safe with her one-year-old son, Yusuf. To be honest, nothing in Gaza is safe. Nothing. Think if you're in Gaza, it means you're not safe. <clears throat> oh my God! Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you can I hear the sounds. What is that? <gasps> it's it's the bombing. They endured this for 27 days. The family kept trying to get back home to Medway. We were in touch with them almost daily. Wafa's husband, Abud Okal, told us about fleeing to southern Gaza amid a massive evacuation, and then desperate searches for water, food, and fuel, and the confusion about when foreign citizens would be able to cross the border into Egypt. He said it was the increased fighting that was so unsettling. We've been trying to stay strong, but it hasn't been... Uh, easy. Um, airstrikes have intensified the last few days and especially last night. Um, it's become constant all night uh, for and most of the day. They eventually made it back to Massachusetts safe but worried about loved ones that they had to leave behind in Gaza. And, and WBUR doesn't just report that events are happening. We also bring you stories of people affected by those events. And our hope is that hearing directly from the people with the most at stake fosters deeper understanding for you and throughout our community. Reporter Deb Becker, they're talking about an important story that she has been on top of. And think about that. She's been reporting that story while also bringing you important news about the situation at Mass and Cass. She's had incredible reporting about the opioid crisis here. A recent story by hers was about a, a different approach to how people are recover from being from addiction and how people are rethinking the tough love approach. 
You are crucial to us being able to bring you high-quality journalism like that every morning, especially at a time when facts and being well-informed have never been more important. Think about how much you value WBUR and support it right now when we need you the most. Call call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and thank you very much for your support. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments, dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis through the Fuss Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention, and therapeutic programming, and training for valued clinicians. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Liz Cheney is out with a tell-all book, an accounting from inside her party on the days before and after the mob attack on the Capitol on January 6th. We need to hold the doors of the Capitol. Oath and Honor, a memoir and a warning, is a scathing rebuke of Cheney's former colleagues, who she writes knowingly collaborated and enabled former President Trump's lies about the 2020 election results. She writes of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who defended Trump's lack of a response to the attack on him and his colleagues on January 6th. What he ended the call was saying, telling me he'll put something out to make sure to stop this. And that's what he did. He put a video out later. A video of Trump, if you recall, that came hours into the attack. In it, he called the attackers good people. Cheney also writes about then-GOP caucus vice chair Mike Johnson, currently the Speaker of the House, backing the lie that the election was stolen after U.S. courts and state Republican election leaders all debunked the claim. President Trump, during his rallies that summer, in, in all of his speeches, he was saying, hey, watch it. The rules are being changed. You know, he was right. When Johnson asked members to sign an amicus brief in support of throwing out election results in some key states, her colleagues, she wrote, felt pressure to sign. Cheney recalls one saying, the things we do for the orange Jesus. On January 6th, when she and her colleagues were attacked for trying to certify the 2020 election results, she thought her party would agree that Trump had threatened this country's democracy. But she was wrong. Months later, she was removed from party leadership because of her stance. Just before her ouster, she gave a defiant speech on the House floor. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. She would go on to lose her House seat to a candidate backed by Trump. She felt compelled to write this book, she says, because the foundations of this country are still at risk. I thought it was particularly important because the threat that we we have faced began really in the time period that I cover in the book is ongoing. Mm-hmm. And we're now in a situation where it looks like there's a very good chance that Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee, for example. And um, people really, I think, need to understand and recognize the specifics, the details of what he tried to do in terms of overturning the election and seizing power, and the details and the specifics of the elected officials who helped him, and as well as what he would do if he were elected again. And and we don't have to guess about that because he has been very clear in terms of being at war with the rule of law. But in terms of, of what happened on Capitol Hill, what happened in Congress in the aftermath of the 2020 election, 
I do think it's very important for people to understand how close we came to a far greater constitutional crisis and how quickly and easily, in a way that is frankly terrifying, um, members of Congress who you know had seemed reasonable and, and responsible before the 2020 election in many cases, how quickly those individuals decided to, to put their own political survival ahead of their duty to the Constitution. Um, and it's a, it's a scary story, but I think it's one that it's, it's really important. I think people deserve to know what happened from the inside. Now, you don't hold back in this book. You name names. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy comes off as a hypocrite and a coward. You write that he told you Trump knew he'd lost the election, and yet McCarthy repeats these lies and ends up publicly defending the president after the attack on the Capitol. You also write about current speaker Mike Johnson, also an election denier. You say he was easily swayed by flattery from Trump, and you criticize their cowardice, the party's cowardice. Why was it important for you to call out party leadership by name in this moment? Several reasons. One, um, you know, with respect to Mike Johnson, when I wrote the book, he was not the Speaker of the House. And, uh, you know, I, I focused very much on the role that he played because it had been such a destructive role even before he ascended to the Speakership. And I was very involved and engaged uh, in terms of the debates that, that we were having about whether or not Republicans should sign on to the Texas amicus brief, for example, or about whether Republicans should be objecting to electoral votes. And Mike played a particularly destructive role. He claimed to be a constitutional lawyer. He claimed to be somebody who was committed to the rule of law. And then time and time again, really did ignore the rulings of the courts and made assertions to our colleagues that were um, not supported by the facts or by the law or by the Constitution. And the story of the role that he played, I felt, was a very important one to tell even, you know, before he was in a role of prominence that he is now. And I, I think that history really has to be informed by specific individuals and, and by people understanding that it doesn't take very much tragically and, and frankly, in, in, a, in a way that, that I find heartbreaking. Mm. It didn't take much for people um, to decide that they were going to ignore the most fundamental obligation I believe elected officials have. In the beginning of the book and the beginning of this, you are in leadership in your party, and you feel that a lot of your party understands what's at stake with you. But then slowly that chips away, and at, at a certain point you're almost standing alone. Did you have a watershed moment where you realized, the party isn't with me. After the election, I think there was a period of time where many of us in the party thought, look, there may be legal challenges. Every candidate has the right to do that if, if they have a basis for it. But certainly by the time the Electoral College meets, Donald Trump will concede. It'll become clear that Joe Biden is obviously going to be the president and we will all you know, move forward. And so there were just many moments where I thought that was going to happen and it didn't. Certainly then, you know, when we got to January 6th, and obviously I, I talk at length in the book about the, the lead up to and that day itself. But in the aftermath of the 6th, there was near unanimity in the sense that Donald Trump was responsible for what happened. Uh, Republicans proposed legislation that would have censured Donald Trump, and the language in that legislation was virtually identical to the article of impeachment. 
Republicans proposed a bipartisan commission to investigate what had happened, and and the commission that the Republicans proposed was called the Commission to Investigate the Domestic Terrorist Attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it was clear, it was common sense, we'd lived through it, and that near unanimity, though, began to dissipate very quickly. What was it that stripped away that unanimity? I think it's several things. I think that some of it was certainly just sort of, you know, raw political ambition, that every member of Congress, if you asked them, you know, listen, if if you have to choose between the Constitution and your own political survival, every one of them will say, well, of course, we will choose the Constitution. But as it turned out, when it came down to it, most of them, or too many of them, didn't. Some of it was fear of violence. And, you know, I talk in the book about members who told me they believed Donald Trump should be impeached, but they couldn't vote to impeach him because they were afraid for their security, for their family's security. People really need to stop and think about what does it mean in America that members of Congress are not voting the way that they believe they should because they fear violence instigated by, you know, then the sitting president of the United States. That's a place we haven't been before. What's the stake here for the country? It couldn't be higher. It really couldn't. And sometimes you hear people say, I, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently where they suggested that even if Donald Trump were elected, it wouldn't be that bad because, of course, we have these institutions and we have these traditions and we have the separation of powers and, and that people could somehow count on that to restrain him. And one of the main messages of my book is, no, you can't. You mm. cannot count on those institutions to restrain him. You will not be able to count on you know, a House of Representatives led by Mike Johnson and full of individuals who've already pledged allegiance to Donald Trump. They won't restrain him. Uh, United States Senate, you know, with people like Mike Lee, Rand Paul, uh, they won't restrain him. Tommy Tuberville holding nominations for the most senior positions at the Pentagon. Why is Tommy Tuberville doing that? It's causing great damage to this nation's military readiness. Is he holding those positions open so that Donald Trump can fill them? What's he doing? It's certainly not serving the purposes of the United States of America. The Republican Party is is in your blood, right? I mean, the daughter of Dick Cheney, the former vice president, uh, in the book you describe a lot of towering figures in the Republican Party from the generation before you and your current generation. Uh, You still describe yourself as a conservative with these conservative values, but are you a Republican? I um, I am am certainly uh, not uh, a Trump Republican. Um, I uh, think that the Republican Party as it exists today is, um, is dangerous to the country. I think that we have to work to rebuild um, a conservative party. And I don't know whether that means that, you know, the Republican Party, which um, has gone so far down this path of a cult of personality, whether it can come back Mm. or whether we will need to build a new party, another, you know, party that truly stands for conservative values. And either way, I think that that is a project that is crucially important, but that won't be completed by 2024. And so I, I think very much about what is the most important thing to do now. And I think the most important thing to do now without question is to make sure we stop Donald Trump. What American politics looks like after that, what the Republican Party or a new Republican Party or a new conservative party looks like after that remains to be seen. 
Are you considering a run for the presidency in 2024? I haven't, I haven't ruled it out. I look at it though very much through the lens of stopping Donald Trump. And so whatever it will take to do that um, is very much my focus. I think the danger is that great that that needs to be everybody's top priority. Liz Cheney, her new book is called Oath and Honor, a memoir and a warning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, wonderful to be with you. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Monday morning. In 15 minutes, the toll the conflict between Israel and Hamas is having on cultural and historic sites in Gaza. It's 725. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call one 800 909 9287. We're in the home stretch of our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR. We have 45% of our goal to go in order to end where we need to be, and that is completely doable with your help. This is a great time to give. It'll start your week off right and give you a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment at on a Monday morning. Because when you support WBUR, you are fighting back against misinformation, like you heard Mary Louise Kelly say right there, and supporting a source of unbiased, balanced news that informs your community. And think about what you just heard, an incredible conversation with former Republican Congressman Liz Cheney about what was going on in her party before and after the January 6th insurrection. That is incredibly important and insightful, and we know you want to hear these kind of things. We need your support to keep them coming to you. Go to WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Jay Clayton. I was struck in particular, Rupa, in that conversation by so many things, but one when Liz Cheney said that there were members of her party who felt they should vote one way, but they were afraid to vote that way Mm -hmm. because of the safety of their families. And this is serious stuff, and we need real journalism that will take this on, that will meet this moment, and we are doing that here at WBUR and at NPR but we can't do it alone. We need more members and more member dollars to be able to continue this important work. And that's why we're asking you to step in, whether you can give $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000 to keep this voice strong. This is when we need you to meet the moment with your financial support so we can keep doing this work for you and for our community and for this country. So give what you can at 1-800-909-9287. That's 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. There are so many reasons to give, so many examples for why you should give. Right now at WBUR.org, our story about a Palestinian-Irish-American college student who was shot last month in an unprovoked attack in Burlington, Vermont, 
The news now is that he is paralyzed from the chest down. There's also lighter stuff, because we need that light stuff, like a story about why winter sunsets in New England are especially vibrant, and a story by Morning Edition's own field producer, Lainey Ruxtell, about why Boston gets a Christmas tree from Nova Scotia as a gift every year. Think about these stories. Think about the companionship that we bring you every morning, the connection to the world we make possible for you. And all of that is only possible because of you and others in your community who step up on days like this and recognize that they have a role in making sure WBUR is there and continues at the level you expect for your community. It only happens with your support. And when we support WBUR together, WBUR is as strong as you expect it to be, as you want it to be for your community. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. When you call that number or when you go to the website and give, take away one of the Charles River Apparel WBUR jackets. These are mid-weight jackets. They are so comfortable and so well made by a local apparel maker. They're exclusively made for WBUR. Men's and women's sizes, the most popular ones go quickly. You can have one as our thanks for your contribution of $15 a month that will help fuel our journalism here at WBUR. Get in on that at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and thank you for considering it. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in the Biden administration's legal challenge to a nationwide settlement involving Purdue Pharma. The maker of OxyContin is owned by members of the Sackler family. They agreed to give up ownership of the company in a bankruptcy filing in exchange for billions of dollars for the prevention and treatment of opioid addiction. NPR's Brian Mann has more. Members of the family who deny any wrongdoing, who've never been charged with any crimes, got rich from OxyContin sales. And they agreed to pay $6 billion out of their private fortunes into this bankruptcy settlement. In exchange, they demanded complete immunity from all those thousands of opioid lawsuits. And they won. A federal bankruptcy judge signed off on that deal, uh, cash in exchange for a clean legal slate. The high court is being asked to decide if the bankruptcy judge oversteps his authority by shielding the Sacklers from civil lawsuits. The president of the International Committee of the Red Cross is in Gaza today. She's expected to call on Israel to do more to protect civilians there and for Hamas to release the hostages it still holds from its deadly assault in southern Israel on October 7th. Hamas is believed to still be holding more than 130 people, including more than a half dozen Americans. This is NPR News. 
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Pentagon confirms one of the men killed in a military training accident off the coast of Japan was from Pittsfield. Jacob Gallagher is the only airman to be identified so far. The Pentagon said this morning it has found some of the remains and wreckage from the craft of the uh, crash of the Osprey aircraft. The search for the other missing crew members is ongoing. Business confidence in Massachusetts remains in slightly optimistic territory. That's according to November's Business Confidence Index from the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. The group's executive vice president, Christopher Guerin, says employers continue to have mixed feelings about current economic conditions. Financial markets have taken off in the last month or so because the economy appears to be slowing down, taking pressure off of inflation and interest rates. At the same time, employers are also starting to see a little bit more weakness in orders and sales and things like that. Guerin says employers in the state feel more optimistic that economic conditions will stay positive over the next six months. The MSPCA is trying to clear its shelters of adult dogs ahead of the holidays. Beginning today, adoption fees for dogs over one year old will be waived at the MSPCA's adoption centers in Boston, Salem, Methuen, and Centerville. Mike Kiley is director of the adoption centers. Getting them adopted is a number one goal, but really we want them to stay in their adoptive home and be successful and loved and cherished in that home. And that is all about matchmaking. That's what our organization does well. Adoption fees for the adult dogs will be waived all week. It's 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Bruins beat the Columbus Blue Jackets 3-1 last night at the Garden. The Patriots were shut out by the L.A. Chargers 6-0 yesterday in Foxborough. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Indiana Pacers for the quarterfinals of the in-season tournament. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to the low 50s. Still mostly overcast tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Cooler tomorrow in the low 40s and mostly cloudy. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Over the weekend, Vice President Harris emphasized the United States' preferred solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's a two-state solution with an independent Palestine alongside Israel. This is not a popular solution right now among the people who would be affected. On this program, analyst Khalil Shikaki said a lot of Palestinians see the two-state solution as a hopeless cause. If this looks like a feasible solution to the conflict, there will be greater support. Right now, the lack of support is mainly due to the belief that it is simply not feasible. The fact that Israel is opposed to the two-state solution. He says that explains the loss of support for Palestinian leaders who promote two states and higher support for Hamas, which demands an end to Israel.
A survey by the Israel Democracy Institute finds that most Jewish Israelis don't support two states either. Yohanan Plesner is president of the Israel Democracy Institute, and he joins us from Israel via Skype. Welcome to the program, sir. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Good morning. I'm interested to see your survey because Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, has very rarely supported two states, definitely doesn't support that now. And I'd like to know, in saying that, is he in fact reflecting Israeli majority opinion? Well, Israelis are mainly confused. Even in the wake of this worst attack in our history and in the midst of a bloody war, a vast majority of Israelis do not want to reoccupy the Palestinians and, and basically do not want to hold on permanently to the Gaza Strip. Hmm. Only about a quarter of Israelis, even now, in the midst of all of this mess, are interested in that. At the same time, Israelis, you know, they want Palestinians to govern their own lives as much as possible. And at the same time, they want to ensure that any future Palestinian political entity cannot arm itself again with Iranian support and launch, and launch future attacks like October 7th. So as I mentioned, Israelis are confused. They do not trust the Palestinians now just to sort of to create a vacuum and for mm -hmm. them to uh, manage their own uh, security affairs, and at the same time, Israelis are not interested in managing yeah. the Palestinians. Yeah, well, that that would explain why Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders in recent years give an impression of preferring to manage this conflict rather than solve it, because the solutions don't seem to be ideal for them. But I'd like to know now, did the attack on October 7th cause some Israelis to question whether it's practical to just manage this conflict forever? Well, I think, as I mentioned, the Israelis are confused. The idea that you can just manage the conflict obviously has received a serious blow, but at the same time, also the idea that Israel can just move out all of these Palestinian area, uh, areas are just a few miles from 80% of Israel's population centers, so you can just move out and leave a security vacuum, is, is also not a very appealing ideas, idea to so many Israelis. I think there's a one clear understanding that without dismantling Hamas, there will be no peace and no chance for a Palestinian state. This is a terror organization that is interested in an Islamic Sharia state, as they mentioned, from the river to the sea, or in other words, to eradicate Israel. So as long as Hamas is there, this entire discussion is very theoretical. Once Hamas is removed, I think there will be an interim period with the support of our European friends, our American allies, uh, moderate Arab states, mm -hmm. and moderate Palestinians to try and, 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 and create a different reality that can be trusted. And hopefully down the road, the political entity that manages itself with serious uh, uh, constraints on its security mm -hmm. uh, capabilities. Well, let me just ask, though, um, how much of the Israeli public, including settlers who've gone into the West Bank but get to vote in Israeli elections, how much of the Israeli electorate has a maximalist solution in mind for them? They would like to control everything from the river to the sea, and they wouldn't mind if Palestinians went somewhere else. Well, as I mentioned, you know, the same figure, you, you mentioned that there's a sort of a a wary Israeli public opinion about a Palestinian state. And uh, uh, because Israelis, when they hear a Palestinian state, they understand, you know, uh, a state with all of the capabilities. But uh, when we ask the same Israelis in the same poll, only 25% want to, uh, even now in the midst of war, want to control uh, uh, Gaza permanently. So a vast majority are not interested in it. Are those 25% though very particularly influential? 
I don't think so. Right now, uh, right now, even the prime minister said he's not interested. I think this is a marginal voice in Israeli public life. And the main voice is how do we move out, uh, uh, not control the lives of the Palestinians, and at the same time, uh, make sure our security interests are taken care of. Okay, Yohanan Plesner is president of the Israel Democracy Institute. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. As we've been reporting, Israel's aggressive military response to the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel has killed more than 15,000 people so far, that according to Gaza's health ministry. And reports on the ground as well as satellite images show that thousands of homes have been destroyed. But NPR's Chloe Veltman reports that there have also been tremendous losses to the region's ancient cultural heritage. The Rafa Museum in southern Gaza was dedicated to teaching about the region's long and multi-layered heritage. In a video posted to the museum's Facebook page on October 11th, museum director Sahela Shaheen stands amid the rubble of the destroyed space. The wall behind her has completely collapsed. Shaheen describes some of the priceless items in the museum's collection now lost. Coins, precious stones, copper plates, clothes, all kinds of artifacts dating back to times in Gaza's history, when the region was a hub for commerce and culture under Egyptian, Greek, Roman and Byzantine rule. The museum is in God's care now, Shaheen says. The Rafa Museum is one of more than 100 cultural landmarks in Gaza damaged or destroyed over the past few weeks. Other significant losses include the Great Amari Mosque, one of the most renowned mosques in all of Palestine, the Church of St. Porphyrius, thought to be the third oldest church in the entire world, and a 2,000-year-old Roman cemetery excavated only last year. If this heritage will not be more in Gaza, it will be a big loss of the identity of the people in Gaza. That's Isber Sabrin. He's the president of Heritage for Peace. The Catalonia-based NGO published a preliminary survey of the damage to cultural heritage sites in Gaza. Sabrin says they plan to continue this work both on the ground and using satellite imagery. The people in Gaza, they have the right to keep and to save this heritage, to tell the history, the importance of this land The 1954 Hague Convention, ratified by the Palestinians and the Israelis, is supposed to safeguard landmarks from the ravages of war. But Gaza's heritage sites have repeatedly been damaged in past attacks. In a statement sent to NPR, UNESCO shared its concerns about the precarious state of heritage sites in the Gaza Strip and called on all parties involved to strictly adhere to international law. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. At the top of the hour, a preview of today's Supreme Court hearing on the bankruptcy settlement of the maker of OxyContin. It's 743. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much 
bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it'll help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We are in our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR, and the end is in sight. It's the end of the day on Wednesday, but we still have 45% of our goal to raise, and we need your help to get there. It is a goal we can all feel good about achieving when we do it together. I'm Rupa Shanoi, Morning Edition host, here with Jay Clayton, reminding you that WBUR is one of the essentials in your life. And it is only here for you every single morning, every single day, because of thousands of listeners who have given money voluntarily over the past several decades. Because listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. I try and say that slowly because it it is powerful. It is a powerful sentence because it is so key to what we are here. I'll say it again. Listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. So we are asking you to start a monthly contribution now because that contribution will fuel our future. And we need you to do your part because our future is not guaranteed. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's Jay. You could wait until the end of this fundraiser on Wednesday to make your contribution, but giving right now is actually three times better. Why is that? That's because some members of our Murrow Society just put a triple match on the table that will last until 8 o'clock this morning, about 12, 13 minutes, or until we raise $5,000, whichever comes first. So be a part of this. If you give, for example, $100 to WBUR to help fuel that journalism, it will become $300 when your money is topped off with that match. If you give $500 right now, it becomes $1,500. So give what you can and it will instantly be tripled if you get your contribution to us by 8 o'clock this morning. It is right now 746. So you've got 14 minutes to take advantage of this opportunity that will triple what you can give to WBUR for everything that you get from WBUR every day. The number to call is 1-800-909-9287, and the website is WBUR.org. And think about what you get from WBUR. We recently had a story. Over 100 students walked out of Boston Latin School to voice concerns over the U.S.'s response to the Israel-Gaza war. Also, COVID rates are ticking up in Massachusetts, and that might have had something to do with Thanksgiving. So you might want to read that story or listen to that story before you go to Christmas, because those holiday gatherings have a lot to do with what's going on. This is about being well-informed, and this is how you do it, by listening and making sure that this service is there for your community, because it is important for the people around you to be informed. We have learned that over the last several years. We can't just ignore the people around us and what they know and what they don't know. What they know is crucial to our future. This is how you have an impact on that, by fueling WBUR, by making sure there's rigorous journalism 
every day for the thousands of listeners who depend on WBUR like yours, like you. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Now is an incredible time to give because of this flash match. I'm, I'm learning some new tech, uh, terminology this morning. I, I didn't know flash match was a thing, but it is a thing. It is a thing that we need you to be a part of. It is only available for the next 12 minutes, and we need you to act fast to get in on this triple match because it triples the impact for WBUR. Go to WBUR. WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And the ICA, now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Queen Latifah became the first female rapper to receive an award that goes to only a handful of performers each year. The Kennedy Center Honors Celebrate Artistic Excellence. And she joined Billy Crystal, Dionne Warwick, Renee Fleming, and Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. When rapper, singer, and actor Queen Latifah was in high school, she had a group called Ladies Fresh. Before the show, I asked her if she could talk to that teenager today, what would she say? It's okay to fail, just get back up and keep trying and go for your goals, go for your dreams. Every year, the Kennedy Center invites artists to pay tribute to the honorees. Another pioneering rapper, MC Light, said in the 90s, Latifah took on hip-hop when it was even more male-dominated than it is now. The songs that Latifah chose to do and create had everything to do with empowering not just one generation, but many. I think gave them a self-confidence that a lot of other music, you know, may not have addressed at that time. Some think that we can't flow. Can't flow. Stereotypes, they got to go. Got to go. I'ma mess around and flip the scene into revert. With what? With a little touch of ladies first. Among the artists who came to toast Billy Crystal were Jay Leno and Rob Reiner, who directed When Harry Met Sally. Meg Ryan gave Crystal credit for that iconic scene in the deli. The scene came really naturally to me, and I really have Billy to thank for that. (laughs) Whoopi Goldberg mentioned the nine times he hosted the Academy Awards. Every Oscar show that Billy did was exceptional, and he should be given an honorary Oscar for all that he's done for the Academy Awards. The gala also likes to highlight how honorees have used their star power for social good. Opera singer Renee Fleming is behind efforts to raise awareness about the connection between art and health. In the 1980s, Dionne Warwick was one of the first celebrities to raise awareness about the AIDS epidemic. Debbie Allen remembered when she visited a pediatric hospital in D.C. She was so overcome that she picked up one of the babies, gave them a hug and a kiss, which created quite a stir, because by doing so, she dispelled the myth that you could catch AIDS through touch. In 1985, Warwick teamed with Gladys Knight, Elton John, and Stevie Wonder to record a song that raised millions of dollars for AIDS research. 
Kennedy Center honorees spent the weekend in Washington. They attended a White House reception and a dinner hosted by the State Department, where they received their rainbow-striped medallions. Accepting his, songwriter Barry Gibb had a message. I only have two words that have meant something to me for the last couple of years, and that is kindness and understanding. And we seem to be losing that. We're losing it in the rest of the world, and we need to grab it back as quickly as possible. The Kennedy Center Honors will air on CBS TV and stream on Paramount Plus later this month. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News, Washington. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, took in more than $27 million this weekend. That's a global figure. And that's barely a quarter of what Taylor Swift's concert movie took in a few weeks ago. But NPR's Bob Mondello says theater owners are delighted. If this had been a head-to-head race, Beyonce would have taken a quick lead. Thursday night previews for Renaissance topped $5 million, nearly double the preview take for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour movie. But as industry watchers quickly pointed out, just two days before the Taylor Swift movie opened, she was still saying there wouldn't be any previews because she wanted to open on her lucky Friday the 13th. Theater owners persuaded her at the last moment that all big movies these days have previews, and indeed, once they were hastily scheduled, her Swifties found them to the tune of $2.8 million. No such confusion slowed Renaissance. Queen Bee's fans have been able to buy advance preview tickets for weeks, so it's not really surprising that she did better out of the gate. But with Beyonce appealing to an older demographic, and with the week after Thanksgiving traditionally a terrible week at the box office, no one expected her film to keep up that pace. She ended the weekend with $22 million in North America and another $6 million overseas, which back when Swift opened in mid-October might have seemed lackluster. The first weekend in December, it's a win for everybody. That's because there's something unusual about both these concert movies. They bypassed the Hollywood establishment. During the pandemic, theater owners complained as film studios kept delaying openings and streaming movies rather than sending them to cinemas that they needed fresh product to keep their doors open. Now they found an angle. Beyonce and Taylor Swift both signed contracts for their concert films directly with theater owners, specifically with AMC theaters. The deal? With no Hollywood middlemen to siphon off fees and advertising costs, the pop stars get 50 cents of every dollar that comes in at the box office, a much better split than they'd get from a studio, and the theater owners get full houses in weeks they'd usually do very little business. As for the Battle of the Divas, Beyoncé didn't match Taylor Swift's box office numbers, but she's still got bragging rights. Renaissance is among the top openings ever for the first weekend in December. I'm Bob Mandela.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Dedicated to ocean research, technology, and education. Currently seeking innovators, engineers, and explorers to help advance ocean science and technology for the global good. Discover career opportunities in your field at whoi.edu team. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition, and there is only five... Four minutes left in a triple match that is only available until 8. It only takes a minute to give to WBUR, so you can absolutely take advantage of this incredible opportunity while you are getting done what you need to get done this morning. It will mean so much to WBUR. We're asking you to think about how we help you make sense of the world and your neighborhood every single day and how we are the fabric of your day. This is when we come back to you to ask you to do your part in making sure this service continues for you and your community at the level you depend on. And because you care about impact, we know this triple match will mean a lot to you. Whatever you give right now, there are only three minutes, almost four minutes, but more like three minutes left to have your contribution tripled by a group of generous WBUR listeners who think it is so important for you to give, that they have incentivized you to give. And this is actual money for us. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Here's Jay Clayton. Yeah, the members of the Morrow Society who put this money together to match your support, to triple match your support, in fact, they know and want you to know that we need more members and more member dollars to keep meeting this moment with everything happening around us locally, nationally, and internationally, and bringing you the journalism that fosters deeper understanding of all of it. That starts with listener support. It's the largest share of our funding. It's why these members are encouraging you to become a member yourself, and they will triple what you give if you do it in these last couple of minutes before 8 o'clock. You really have to be quick here. one 800 909-9287 is the phone number to call. I'll give you that again, 1-800-909-9287. You can also get in on the match at WBUR.org, but it's on the table for just a couple of more minutes. So take care of it right now so you don't miss your chance to triple your support of WBUR. Think about the the mix of what we bring you every single morning. Yeah, heavier news, like a conversation this morning about the White House's ongoing support for a two-state solution in the Middle East and how that's being received in Jerusalem. There's also music like Beyonce that you just heard and, you know, who's going to win the Kennedy Center honors. We're asking you to make a monthly contribution that reflects how important WBUR is to you because we are there for you every single morning. Now we have to ask for your help to make sure WBUR has a secure future. There is only almost two minutes left in this match. It has such an impact for WBUR. It doesn't take a lot. $10, $20, or $30 a month will have a big impact, especially right now because it will be tripled tripled. We're living at a time that is as unprecedented as it is unpredictable. What hasn't changed is that real journalism is essential to your life and our democracy. This is when you act to support it and to make sure that it continues as a service in your community. And 
you have the opportunity right now to have your impact tripled. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. On the table between Rupa and I is this amazing WBUR jacket from Charles River Apparel, a local apparel maker. They make these exclusively for WBUR. You can have one as our thanks for your contribution of $15 a month or $180 all at once. That $180 becomes $540 thanks to the triple match if you get your jacket and support your station right now. This is the last chance to get in on that match. So call 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287. Triple match. It's ending right now. So get in on it on the phone or at wbur.org. And thank you very much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law This is NPR. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's been more fighting between the Israeli military and Hamas militants today. There are reports of rockets being launched toward Israel. The Israeli military is dropping leaflets in southern Gaza, telling Palestinian civilians where to move for safety. But most of southern Gaza is already overcrowded with displaced people. The World Health Organization warns disease is breaking out. The head of the International Committee of the Red Cross is in Gaza today. President Biden is urging Congress to expedite the approval of additional U.S. aid to Ukraine. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the White House has sent a letter to congressional leaders reminding them that money already allocated to Kyiv will run out at the end of the year. In an urgent letter from Budget Director Shalanda Young, the White House says the decision to give more aid to Ukraine in their fight against Russia is part of a fight for freedom across the globe. Young writes, quote, there is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. The White House argues that with no aid, Ukraine is kneecapped on the battlefield. In October, Biden sent a request to Congress to pass $61 billion in aid to Ukraine, which is meant to last until September 2024. But Republicans in the House are holding that request up over border security negotiations. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney's new book, Oath and Honor, is out tomorrow. It's both a memoir and a warning. Cheney sat down with Morning Edition's Layla Faudel. Liz Cheney says the country's democracy is in danger if former President Trump is elected. And she's on a mission to make sure that does not happen. I asked her if she's considering running. I haven't ruled it out. I look at it, though, very much through the lens of stopping Donald Trump. 
And so whatever it will take to do that is very much my focus. I think the danger is that great that that needs to be everybody's top priority. Her book is an accounting of what happened inside the Republican Party in the weeks before and after the January 6th attack. Leila Faldin, NPR News. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis says that if elected president next year, he would replace Obamacare with a better national health care plan. What I think they're going to need to do is have a plan that will supersede Obamacare, that will lower prices for people so that they can afford health care, while also making sure that people with pre-existing conditions uh, are protected. And we're going to look at the big institutions that are causing uh, prices to be high. Big pharma, big insurance, and big government. The Republican presidential candidate spoke to NBC's Meet the Press. DeSantis did not offer further specifics. The Democratic National Committee is criticizing DeSantis, saying that his changes to the Affordable Care Act would increase health care costs to consumers. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. House lawmakers on Beacon Hill will make another attempt today to pass a $2.8 billion supplemental budget. Republicans have prevented the measure from moving forward three times. They oppose the way the state's strained shelter system would be funded. WBUR's Arena Machavariani reports on more consequences of the delay. The $2.8 billion spending bill includes pay raises for union public sector employees. The state agreed to them this year, and the hike is scheduled to kick in by Christmas. Dave Foley represents the Service Employees International Union locally. We're just waiting for the money to come through, and it's not going to be here for the holiday season because of the dysfunction in our legislature. Democratic leaders failed to reach a budget agreement before the formal session ended. That has allowed the Republican minority to use procedural rules to stall action. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. UMass Boston and Mass General Brigham are expanding their program to support diversity and leadership for UMass Boston nursing students from underrepresented communities. Gordia Bannister is program director for clinical leadership at Mass General Brigham. She says it's important to have nurses who look and sound like the patients who they are serving. Bannister says the $20 million expansion is expected to help 400 students over five years. We're giving them a deeper dive in terms of some of the issues related to health disparities and health inequities, as an example. We want them to be our future leaders of our health care system. Bannister says students will also get preferential clinical placement within the Mass General Brigham system. The New England Aquarium says it's treated more than 200 hypothermic sea turtles so far this season. The so-called cold-stunned sea turtles wash up on Cape Cod through the fall and winter. That's because of changing water temperatures and wind patterns. Many of the cold-stunned turtles have been the endangered Kemp Ridley species. They'll be rehabilitated for up to a year before being released back into the ocean. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. 
Brad Marchand scored a hat trick for the Bruins last night. They beat the Columbus Blue Jackets 3-1 to at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Thursday. The Patriots lost their fifth in a row yesterday. They fell to the L.A. Chargers 6-0. The Pats will visit the Pittsburgh Steelers on Thursday. And tonight the Celtics will visit the Indiana Pacers. It'll be mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s today. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 30s. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBOR's funding, so when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. Good morning. It's a Monday morning on WBOR, and you are starting your week off right because you are listening to Morning Edition as you always do, because we are your dependable companion and source of news absolutely every single morning when you are getting ready for your day. You depend on us for important news, like locally what you just heard about efforts to pass a state supplemental budget by Democrats despite procedural measures to block the last three votes by Republicans, and the latest on what local veterinarians say about the respiratory illness going on, going around among dogs. That is the journalism that is important to you, and it's the work we're asking you to support. We're in our year-end fundraiser, and the end is in sight. It ends at the end of the day on Wednesday. This is the season of giving. We're asking you to make sure this service continues. So now, in this home stretch of this fundraiser, we have 45% of the way to go to get to our goal, and we need your help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Jay Clayton. And what we're asking you to help us fund is more of the journalism we all need to really understand uh, how things are playing out between Israel and Hamas, for example. Uh, what's happening with the family shelter system here in Massachusetts that has reached a breaking point? All these stories depend on listener support, and we bring you those news stories. We bring you stories that go beyond the news to gather perspective that we all need to navigate these tricky times. Let's listen to this. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. A 2017 essay by Julie Wittischlack gets a lot of attention whenever we repost it. The piece pivots on an old photograph of Julie's mom and dad and her aunt and uncle at the beach. All four have lived through tumultuous times, having survived Nazis and bankruptcy and disease. Yet in that photo... You can't imagine four people more full of life. Julie wonders how they did it. Did they have a stronger sense of agency? Had they simply lost their fear? Neither, she concludes. Those four parents simply loved life's essentials. Food, water, sun, and a herd to huddle with, with a blazing fierceness that parched despair before it could take root. I think people love this essay and keep returning to it. 
because it delivers lessons for our anxious times, that even the most difficult of circumstances can be met with love and gratitude. A big part of my job is to help our authors uncover emotional truths. It's one of the ways our role at WBUR goes beyond telling you the news of the day to bringing you stories that illuminate ideas and foster connection. Like Chloe said right there, it's about connections. This is the way you connect with your community every morning in the most important way possible, by coming together around facts and a shared commitment to truth. That is how we will get through these really tough times together. And when it comes to funding journalism, it matters where money comes from. WBUR gets the biggest share of its funding from our listeners, from our members. That gives us editorial independence that other kinds of funding don't provide. Listener support means we don't have to answer to commercial pressure. We don't have to answer to the government. It means we can hold the government accountable. So when you give to WBUR and join with everyone else in your community who gives to WBUR, you ensure our future and make sure we can keep delivering the truth to you absolutely every single morning. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you do, take away one of our WBUR jackets. They're made by local apparel maker Charles River Apparel. They are warm. They are comfortable. They make a statement about you and what you value. These are exclusive WBUR jackets. You can have one as our thanks for your contribution of $15 a month to fuel our journalism or $180 all at once if you want to do it that way. They will go quickly, especially the most popular sizes. So get yours and support your station at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Israel's military says it has expanded its ground offensive in Gaza and is now targeting Hamas strongholds all across the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces are telling people to flee some areas to avoid those strikes. And that is the hard part. Many civilians have already moved from northern Gaza to the south and may now face demands to leave the same areas to which they fled. Joining us now with more is NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Tel Aviv. Eleanor, hello. Hello. So the fighting resumed on Friday after the ceasefire broke down. Would you just start by telling us more about Israel's stepped-up operations? Well, Israel says it's hit hundreds of Hamas targets overnight as its forces pushed deeper into Gaza. And there were multiple strikes in and around the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus, where the top Hamas leadership is believed to be located, including Yahya Sinwar, who orchestrated the October 7th attack. Israeli media is reporting that any fighting in Khan Yunus will be complicated not only by the hundreds of thousands of people who have fled from the north, but also by the fact that some of the Israeli hostages are believed to be held somewhere around the city. Here Here's Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. He says the Israeli forces are fighting Hamas terrorists face-to-face wherever they are and killing them. The Israeli military says it has found 800 Hamas tunnels since the beginning of the war and it claims to have destroyed 500 of them. 
as we already mentioned, Israel is telling many people in the areas that it is targeting to leave. But how? The Israeli army is claiming they have published a very detailed digital map online to help people get to safer places. And they've also dropped leaflets. You know, they're urging people to go east or west toward the sea, but you can't go any farther south, so it's difficult. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, spoke with Gazans yesterday. Here's Basil Basyuni. He's an engineer and a father. He's putting up a tent for his family in Rafah. He's just fled Han Yunus. He says there are no words to describe the horrible conditions and what's happening. He says there are more than 100 families here, and the last two nights were the most terrible in my life, he told NPR. Basuni says he and his five children watched as the sky was lit up with bombing. What are you hearing Israelis saying about this renewed fighting? Well, some Israelis will tell you that it's just time to get rid of Hamas once and for all, but here in Tel Aviv, the prevailing sentiment seems to be that getting the hostages out is more important than the war, and it should come first. I was at a massive rally in Tel Aviv over the weekend for the more than 100 hostages still in Gaza. Hadas Calderon spoke. Her two children, ages 12 and 16, were kidnapped from a kibbutz and just released. Here she is. Mom, you're alive, is the first thing my kids said to me, she tells the crowd. And her kids thought she'd been killed when they were separated in the October 7th Hamas attack. And Calderon told the crowd, we can't leave the hostages there in the dark and helpless. And you were in the Israeli-occupied West Bank over the weekend. What are people saying there? People feel frustrated and there's powerlessness over what's happening in Gaza. I spoke with 70-year-old Ahmad Omar, a jeweler in Ramallah. He described how people feel. They feel so bad about Gaza. You know, it's affecting everybody because they're Palestinians, you know, the same people. We can't do nothing about it. They bombarded it so much. We see little kids. It's hard. Tensions have risen in the West Bank since October 7th, and Israeli human rights groups say that 250 Palestinians have been killed since then. One told me it was a pressure cooker ready to explode. That's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Tel Aviv. Eleanor, thank you. You're welcome. In this country, the Supreme Court today reviews an effort to hold people accountable for their role in the opioid crisis. It's the deal involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of the painkiller OxyContin. The Sackler family controlled that company, and they've agreed to pay to fight the crisis in exchange for protection from civil lawsuits. So should they get to walk with their remaining wealth? Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Just what happened at Purdue Pharma and what the Sacklers did was not known for a long time. Now, however, their role and the companies have been well documented in movies, books, and documentaries like this one entitled Crime of the Century. Within the last 20 years, more than 500,000 Americans have been killed by overdoses. This was a new drug cartel. There were drug dealers wearing suits and lab coats. By 2020, Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to three criminal charges, and the company agreed that it owed $8 billion in criminal and civil fines to be paid to state and local governments handling the fallout of the opioid crisis. Most of the money was conditioned on the company reaching a deal in bankruptcy court that would reimburse the victims. It is that deal that is at the center of today's case because it releases the Sacklers from personal liability, despite the fact that all three of the original Sackler brothers who bought Purdue and ultimately developed OxyContin were doctors, and that six Sacklers sat on the board of the company, including the board chairman, Richard Sackler, who closely directed the firm's aggressive and deceptive marketing strategy of OxyContin. 
Under the original bankruptcy deal with the company, the Sacklers kicked in $4 billion to be divided among the state and local governments, but at the same time, the Sackler family members were to be released from any further liability. When eight states and the District of Columbia balked at the amount, the Sacklers upped the ante to $6 billion, and the objecting states withdrew their opposition. In addition, 95% of the state, local, and tribal governments, as well as groups of individuals, voted to approve the settlement. But United States trustee William Harrington, who oversees bankruptcy cases in New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, objected to the deal. Representing him in the Supreme Court today, the Biden administration will argue that the bankruptcy law does not authorize bankruptcy courts to approve a release from liability for third parties like the Sacklers. Georgetown University law professor Adam Levitin says that the Sacklers' $6 billion to be paid over eight years is buying them not only a release from liability, it's ensuring that they will not have to testify about their misdeeds in future litigation, and they will be able to keep about half of their money and other assets. The Sacklers do not want to have to be in the bankruptcy fishbowl. They're wanting to get bankruptcy at half price. What's more, Levitin notes that the release from liability covers more than just the Sacklers. It also includes lots of Sackler acolytes, from their lawyers and consultants and doctors to former Senator Luther Strange, who was a Purdue lobbyist after leaving the Senate. None of them have to pay a dime, but all of them would be released from liability in the deal. Bankruptcy is supposed to provide relief for honest but unfortunate debtors. And those are people who file for bankruptcy and pay the price. They come clean about their assets and they give up all of their assets to their creditors. The Sacklers are not doing either of those things. Not all bankruptcy experts agree that the deal is not a good one. I think it's backseat driving to say that it's not good enough. Columbia law professor Edward Morrison. The perfect can't be the enemy of the good. Indeed, as Morrison notes, the Sacklers have had 20 years to hide their money in overseas places that may be possible to reach, but costly to reach, costly and time-consuming. Do we want to burn up value reaching those assets and those people, or do we want to just pay the money that's available to the victims? Maybe it's a trade-off that we wouldn't make in an ideal world, but we don't live in a perfect world. Bankruptcy court has a special role to play, particularly in large cases like this one, he argues, because this is the one place where a settlement can be reached with so many victims from so many places and so many diverse interests. That said, though, the Supreme Court of late has signaled its skepticism about bankruptcy judges, viewing them as a lesser form of judge because they serve for limited terms and are appointed by courts of appeal, not the president. And yet, As Morrison points out, bankruptcy courts serve as something of a safety valve for dealing with mass injuries. So if the justices do reverse the Purdue Pharma deal, Morrison says, it will be a, quote, huge mess. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Venezuela held a referendum Sunday over its long-running border dispute with Guyana. Caracas says that millions of voters overwhelmingly approved a claim of sovereignty over an oil-rich portion of its neighbor. But independent observers say, in fact, few people turned out to vote. Reporter John Otis has more. 
Venezuela's referendum was over a jungle region called Essequibo that makes up the western two-thirds of Guyana. In 1899, an international tribunal declared that the territory belongs to Guyana. But more than a century later, Venezuela continues to reject that ruling, and it became more insistent about its claim after huge offshore oil deposits were discovered in Guyana in 2015. On Sunday, Venezuela's autocratic president, Nicolás Maduro, held a news conference urging Venezuelans to throng to the polling stations. They were asked to approve or reject five ballot questions. The most provocative proposal was to annex Essequibo. Guyana's Prime Minister, Mark Phillips, said in a radio interview that his country was preparing for the worst. You go to war with what you have. We are prepared to defend Guyana with what we have. But rather than invading Guyana, Maduro is actually much more focused on next year's presidential election. Jeff Ramsey, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, points out that Maduro is deeply unpopular. Maduro is desperate to make up for his lack of popular support, and so he's trying to unite the country against an exaggerated external threat. But his plan appears to have backfired. Y esta participación masiva que hemos visto nosotros los venezolanos. At a news conference, Venezuela's top electoral official claimed that voter turnout was massive. But journalists and independent observers reported that polling stations across the country were largely vacant. What seems to have happened is disastrous from the government's point of view because it's exactly the reverse of what they intended to prove. That's Phil Gunson, who's based in Caracas for the International Crisis Group. He said the low turnout was so disconcerting for the government that it could even jeopardize Maduro's standing as the ruling party's candidate in next year's presidential election. For NPR News, I'm John Otis. This is NPR News. This is WBUR, and you are listening on a Monday morning. Thank you for listening. Uh, Coming up in just about 20 minutes, uh, efforts to ease the health problems caused by loneliness. It's 825. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. At NPR and this station, we're not beholden to anybody but you. Public media is central to our democracy, so please keep it strong and donate today. This is our year-end fundraiser on WBUR. We are in the home stretch. It ends at the end of Wednesday, so we can the end is in sight. We still have 45% of the way to go to make it to our goal, though, and we need your help to get there. And right now is a great time for you to act because there is a triple match on the table until 9 o'clock. That's about 34 minutes from now. We need you to act now because whatever you give will be tripled. And this means that you can support the high-quality journalism you rely on to be there for you 24-7. You can support it and know that whatever you give will be tripled. Your impact will be tripled for WBUR. And that's meaningful for you because we are your companion as you get ready for work, maybe as you make lunches for the kids and take them to school, maybe as you drive to work. We make it possible for you to do all of that 
and learn about what you need about the world, what you need to know about the world at the same time, both internationally and locally. So give now before you get into your day and the day gets away from you and the week gets away from you. Act now. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Jay Clayton. And we welcome your support anytime, of course, here at WBUR. But the advantage of giving right now, between now and 9 o'clock this morning, is, as Rupa says, your contribution has triple the impact for WBUR. Not double, but triple. Some members of our Murrow Society put this matching money on the table. They gave this money to match your support when you give right now because they know and want you to know that we simply need more members and more member dollars to be able to keep pace with all the news coming at us locally and around the country and throughout the world. It is a lot, and we need everybody who can give something to give something, and the best time to do it is right now when what you give will be tripled. $100 from you becomes $300 for us. $1,000 for you from you becomes $3,000 for WBUR in this community that depends on this journalism. So give what you can when it means the most, which is right now during this triple match. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, and the website is WBUR.org. Supporting facts and a reliable source of information for your community is more important than ever. And when you support WBUR, it's a really meaningful thing to do because, yeah, WBUR is a news organization, but we're also a community, your community. And it's a community that you connect with and feel a part of especially when you give and support WBUR. And remember, listeners built WBUR into what it is now. That's all the people around you who listen. Listeners, keep us a pillar in your community, your community, our community. This is when we remind you that that support needs to be continual and ongoing in order to keep this service coming to you at the level you expect. That is because listeners make up the largest share of our funding. We need you to be one of them. We need you to act now, especially now, when this, when what you give will be tripled. So again, a group of WBUR listeners have agreed to whatever you give, they will look at it and say, okay, multiply that by three. How many chances do you get to do that? Who gives you those kind of offers? That whatever you give, you will get three, you will have three times the impact for WBUR. It's an opportunity that we know is so important to you because you care about what you listen to on the radio. You care about keeping your community informed. You care about keeping this service going. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, that's one 800 909 9287. There are only 30 minutes to go in this match. You need to act now. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. 
Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The president of this year's U.N. Climate Summit is downplaying his recent comments, dismissing the science that says phasing out fossil fuels is essential to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Sultan El-Jaber's comments in a November interview alarmed climate scientists. He was asked about them. This is the first presidency ever to actively call on parties to come forward with language on all fossil fuels for the negotiated text. This is the first ever presidency that does that. Al-Jaber is also chief executive of the United Arab Emirates State Oil Company. The National Association for Business Economics is forecasting slower growth for the U.S. economy next year and cuts in interest rates by the Federal Reserve. Steve Beckner reports. The business economists forecast growth will cool to a modest 1 percent, but three-quarters of them think the economy will avoid dipping into recession, and most of them think the unemployment rate will not exceed 5 percent. They doubt inflation will fall to the Federal Reserve's 2 percent target next year, but project the Fed will start cutting interest rates anyway. Dow futures are down 94 points ahead of the open on Wall Street. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today, the state's highest court will consider a challenge to a ban on carrying switchblades. They've been illegal to carry in the state for decades. The case stems from an incident in Boston a few years ago in which a switchblade was never used or threatened, but was possessed by a perpetrator. Jennifer Smith has been covering the issue for the Commonwealth Beacon. His attorney then petitioned the Supreme Judicial Court, the state's highest court, to hear the case to basically consider whether in the context of recent Supreme Court decisions, carrying a switchblade being totally banned in Massachusetts violates the new understanding and the expanded understanding of the Second Amendment. Smith says one question the court will consider is whether a switchblade would have been carried around for self-defense at the time that the Second Amendment came into effect. The presidents of Harvard and MIT will be testifying before Congress tomorrow. They are expected to join leaders from other universities facing calls to do more to combat anti-Semitism on campus. That follows demonstrations in response to Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Veterinarians in Massachusetts are encouraging pet owners to be cautious, but not to panic, about a mystery illness recently found in some dogs. They tell the Boston Globe the number of respiratory sicknesses is rising, but is in line with recent years. Vets are encouraging owners to get their dogs vaccinated to keep them away from others who may be sick. It's unclear how many dogs in the state may have had the illness. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Patriots were embarrassed at home yesterday by the L.A. Chargers. New England was shut out 6-0. The Bruins beat the Columbus Blue Jackets 3-1 last night at the Garden. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Indiana Pacers for the quarterfinal of the in-season tournament. And Boston College will play a football bowl game at Fenway Park. BC will take on SMU at the Wasabi Fenway Bowl on December 28th. 
And in your forecast, a mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to the low 50s. Still mostly overcast tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Cooler tomorrow in the low 40s and mostly cloudy. It is 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Ron DeSantis is betting big on Iowa. A win in the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses next month would give the Florida governor's presidential campaign a seriously needed boost. Over the weekend, DeSantis wrapped up his tour of Iowa's 99 counties with a rally in Jasper County. That should show you that I consider myself a servant, not a ruler. But DeSantis's focus on the Hawkeye State does not seem to be paying off. Donald Trump still has a strong lead there. Meanwhile, former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is gaining ground and is now virtually tied with DeSantis for second place. Some say following the old playbook of shaking hands in Iowa will not help DeSantis win the Republican nomination. And one of those people is Nathan Gonzalez, who is with us now. He is the editor and publisher of the Inside Elections newsletter. Good morning. Thank you for coming by. No, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, tricky to start with a prediction, but I'm going to do it. At this point, does DeSantis have any chance of winning the Iowa caucuses? Well, we've all learned to give we, to rule out ruling things out, and he has a chance. I just don't think it's a particularly good one. Um, DeSantis doing the 99-county tour is good in that he uh, he's getting attention, right? We're talking about him, but the fundamentals of the race remain the same, and this is not a race to, get, uh, to visit all the counties. It's a race to get the most delegates and to get the most support, and what we know from this is that now DeSantis has been over the last six months to all corners of Iowa, and he is in no better shape and maybe has less support in Iowa than when he started six months ago. And I'm just not convinced that now that he has completed the tour, that suddenly Iowa Iowa voters are going to say, okay, now I'm going with Ron DeSantis and just pushing Trump to the side. Well, this seems to, this is kind of a tradition, right, for, for people to kind of plant themselves, you know, in Iowa, they call that the full grass lease for the, you know, long-serving Senator Charles Grassley to visit all 99 counties. Apparently he does this every year. But this is not working for DeSantis. Why not? Because I think things have changed. I think th- that Trump back in 2016 showed that you don't have to have the be the retail, do all of the retail politics that you typically would have had to do. Now, those people who are listening say, well, wait a minute, Ted Cruz won, uh, Ted Cruz won Iowa back in 2016. And they would be absolutely correct. But Ted Cruz won Iowa with 28%. Now, if we let's say that DeSantis surges all the way to 28% in this race, he would still be losing to President Trump. And so I, I think that the retail retail politics is not what it once was. So the the, the, the goal here is first you got to get the nomination before you can get to the general. Okay. So the, then the goal then has to be to present yourself as a viable Trump alternative. 
does he is he doing that? I think DeSantis missed a great opportunity. He had a great opportunity because of his big reelection win and coming in. Uh, he had the best opportunity of the other non-Trump candidates. But I think he's tried to have it both ways. He's tried to be tried to be too Trump uh, or try to be Trump light, and that hasn't worked. But be a Trump alternative, and he found himself caught in the middle. And now it's not even clear that enough Republican primary voters want an alternative to Trump. And if they do, then they have someone like Governor or Ambassador Haley, who is an alternative as well. I want to talk about. Nikki Haley in just one minute, but before we kind of move beyond DeSantis, if he does manage to pull off an upset win in Iowa, how might this affect his overall chances of winning the GOP nomination? It would be huge, but it also wouldn't change. I don't think Nikki Haley gets out of the race if if DeSantis finishes first. I think then you still have two, <laughs> at least two candidates uh, moving on into the into the next next uh, early states. So I, uh, it would be a shocker. It would show that Trump has a weakness. It would show that uh, that there is a maybe the, you know all the polls are wrong and we go through that again. But there's going to be still Trump versus at least two non-Trump candidates, and that would benefit Trump. So let's talk about the two non-Trump other. Oh, non-Trump candidates. Nikki Haley got a lot of attention recently with this big uh, endorsement and the promise of some financial support from the Koch brothers organization. How does that affecting things on the ground in Iowa? Well, you know, DeSantis is going to say, well, he has a list of, uh, you know, a whole list of endorsements in Iowa, and those are going to those are going to save the day, uh, including from Governor Reynolds. Uh, Nikki Haley, you would rather have that money. There is a grassroots kind of support that comes with the Coke with uh, the Coke endorsement, uh, but I, uh, you know, fundamentally, I think it's still that same. <laughs> that's it's that same Trump and non-Trump dynamic. And but moving forward, it feels like even though Trump, uh, sorry, in, that DeSantis and Haley are even in the polls, they feel like two trains moving in different directions. It feels like DeSantis is losing support or not gaining, and Haley is the one who has the momentum. And the endorsements that DeSantis has gotten, he's gotten some big name endorsements in Iowa. That's something that we had not mentioned to this point. Bob Vanderplatz, who's a big, you know, evangelical leader, he's been considered kind of a power broker in the past, and the governor, uh, the sitting governor, Kim Reynolds, who I understand is, is quite popular in this state. But here again, that doesn't seem to to be helping. I think it's the lack of power of endorsements in general. I, I'm just skeptical that there are a large number of voters, in this case in Iowa, who have been on the fence. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And like, okay, now that Governor Reynolds has told me what to do, I, I'm in. I just don't know. I just don't believe that there are that many people that, that exist. And so Nikki Haley, and who's the other possible alternative? Who's still there? Um, I I think it's basically a three person a three person race at this point. I mean, there is Vivek Ramaswamy who you know who had his moment in the sun or moment in the spotlight. Um, you know, he's been making a noise in the, in the debates, but I think it's really when you when you break down the race, it's going to be Trump, DeSantis, or Nikki Haley. Are are, are the candidates in Iowa? Or sorry, the voters in Iowa. Are they interested or is this is just just um, kind of a foregone conclusion and they're just kind of playing things out? I mean, what the, this is one of the things we always said about Iowa and New Hampshire, which is a whole other you know story, uh, particularly on the Democratic side. But that people really kind of appreciated it, took it seriously, made a point of going to these things, etc. Et Are people interested still or or is it a foregone conclusion for most of the voters there, from what you can tell, I think there's still interest there, and I think the uh, the voters in Iowa take it seriously that they the first in the nation status. Uh, but that doesn't. Um, but we also have to remember that Iowa isn't predictive, right? Let's say DeSantis has this amazing win that you know we're not talking about President. 
Ted Cruz or President Rick Santorum or President Mike Huckabee, former caucus winners uh, who didn't even end up winning the nomination, let alone going on to win the presidency. So Iowa is trying to maintain that first in the nation status without reali- with realizing that they haven't been predictive of success in the future. That's Nathan Gonzalez. He's editor and publisher of Inside Elections Newsletter. Nathan, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. My pleasure. Some other news for you this morning. We're sorry to report that the radio journalist Maria Martin has died. She was a familiar voice on NPR and was the founder of the award-winning program Latino USA. Maria was passionate about the craft of journalism and the importance of bringing Latino voices and stories to English-speaking public radio. Reflecting on her career recently, she said she wanted her work to, quote, reflect the diversity of the Latino community in all of its beauty and in all of its pain, unquote. We will miss her. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Monday morning. Coming up in 20 minutes, the latest on the fighting between Israel and Hamas from the BBC NewsHour. It's 8.43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Weston Nurseries, tis the season to visit for holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford, or online at westonnurseries.com. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour day, December 9th, neiacademy.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR is here to help us all think harder. When we tell you a story, we think about how it'll touch your mind and sometimes your heart. Support journalism that has deep meaning in your life by giving monthly at WBUR.org. Lisa Mullins there. She's the host of our All Things Considered program. You turn to her to stay informed at the end of your day, late afternoon, evening, end of your day. Then you wake up and you listen here to Morning Edition at the start of your day. Together, we are the fabric of your day and your dependable companion. We are the trusted voices that you turn to when you need to know everything going on in the world. And we are committed to always being there for you with the information you need to know. But this is when we remind you that you have a part to play in all this. This is not a passive service. WBUR is something we all do together. We're in our year-end fundraiser. We are in the home stretch. It ends at the end of the day on Wednesday, but we still have 45% of our goal to raise before this ends, and you can play a big part in getting us there because there is a triple match available until 9. That's only 15 minutes away. So we need you to act fast and think about it. This is the time of year when you think about your year-end giving and supporting the organizations that are important to you. We know WBUR is among those groups, so you were going to give anyway. But if you can, take a minute and do it now because your contribution will be tripled. Whatever you give will be multiplied by three by a group of WBUR listeners who are so committed to making sure WBUR is there for years into the future. So act now by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-1111. 
1-800-273-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Jay Clayton. Good morning, Jay. Good morning, Rupa. And I can tell you that as, as someone who is part of the team that puts these fundraisers together, there is no better time to give than during a triple match. And you've got one in front of you right now just until 9 o'clock this morning. So take advantage of that. Make the most of what you can give because, for example, if you give $100 to WBUR, the match makes it 300 If you give 500 the match makes it 1500 This is powerful giving for essential journalism, and that's why we need your support. The largest share of the funding for WBUR's journalism comes from our listeners, and that's why these members of our Morrow Society, some of them who put this money on the table to match your support, they're encouraging you to go beyond listening and become a, a member, to support this journalism, to help sustain it for all of us. Triple match on the table only for another 13 minutes. So take advantage of it at one 800 909 9287. That's 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. It's so hard to know what we can do as individuals to have an impact and to do good in the world. This is an easy way you can do that. And you will be joining with all the other WBUR listeners because when we do act together, we have more of an impact, especially now when there is a triple match on the table. And it's easy to forget because it's so easy to listen and be informed by WBUR every morning, but it takes so many resources to bring you what you hear every morning. More than 30 NPR journalists have spent time in the Mideast covering the conflict between Israel and Hamas since October 7th. They require hostile environment training, transportation, support staff, including producers, all of that takes so much money, much more money than you would think. Serious money. And we're committed to spending that money because, again, we're committed to bringing you the news you need to know. But we need your help. And we need you to do the most you can for WBUR by acting now when there is a triple match. If you can put $100 on the table, that becomes $300 for us. Or if $10 is more your speed, we'll be grateful for that too. That becomes $30 a month. So join all the other listeners who have already stepped up to make sure this service will be there. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, Gather Around, Let's Feast, and the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, about one in four adults say they're lonely. The World Health Organization and the U.S. Surgeon General raise concerns about this as a public health threat. Loneliness is a public health threat, which leads to the question of what can we do? NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on an initiative called Project Unlonely, led by a physician who has turned to art to bring people together. 
At a time when loneliness is considered epidemic, it's worth noting that feelings of detachment or disconnection are not a new phenomenon. Most of us experience pangs of loneliness at some point. It's a near universal experience, says Dr. Jeremy Nobel. And in the U.S., a bent towards independence and individualism is woven into our history. It is part of the American psyche, autonomy, you know, go west, young man, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is part of the, the American narrative in some ways. Of course, it's possible to be both independent and socially connected. But Nobel says what's changed in recent decades are the societal norms and institutions that gave people a place or fixed identity in society. A hundred years ago, your identity was almost fully defined by your gender, your religion, and your status in the tribe, you know, and very little flexibility through the course of your lifetime. Now all of those are in play and it's become both a set of opportunities, but for many a set of challenges. The freedom and flexibility to chart your own course, define your own identity, opens up opportunities and helps many people make authentic connections and thrive. But the rise in loneliness suggests this process of determining who you are, where you fit in, can be disorienting for many people. If we have some uncertainty about our self-worth, about our validity, about our importance to other people, then there's often a hesitancy to make the effort to try to connect. When there's not an easy or prescribed way to fit in, finding connection can be tough. And that's where Nobel's initiatives with art and creative expression come in. In order to connect with other people at some authentic level, you have to take a certain kind of risk. You have to disclose something about yourself that's personal. And so, of course, you risk being judged for what you've shared. But if you don't tolerate that risk, it's very hard. And this is where the arts can be very powerful because they act as a catalyst to make it easier. Drawing a picture may seem like a solitary act, but it can be a bridge to connection, a way to express what's on your mind. Nobel's work in this space began with his own experience with trauma and loneliness. After the death of his father when he was a teenager and a string of other losses as a young adult, he turned to poetry. And working as a primary care doctor, he also launched the Foundation for Art and Healing and began bringing small groups of people together to see how connecting through art and artistic expression could help people process trauma. People began telling us that not only were they less stressed out, but they felt less lonely and more connected. And what he's learned is that most everyone can find a form of creative expression that suits them. Music, painting, dancing may be some of the first to come to mind, but there are many, many more. So culinary arts is a big one. And so is textile arts, knitting, crocheting, quilting. These are all ways to share your stories with others and, and connect. And then, of course, gardening, what a friend of mine calls the world's slowest performance art form. These are all ways people can use their creative imagination to reveal and share something about themselves. We know that making art or even beholding the work of other people reduces levels of the stress hormone cortisol. It increases the levels of the so-called feel-good hormones, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, oxytocin. So even at the very beginning, what the arts do is they relax you and put you in a good mood. So that's a nice way to connect. Project Unlonely partners with community groups to offer creative expression programs, but one of the goals of the initiative is to encourage people to get started on their own. A good first step, Nobel says, is to follow your natural curiosities. 
Think back to childhood interests and find like-minded people who share your interest, whether that's playing fiddle or frisbee, volunteering, joining a gardening or scrabble club. One kind of quirky example from his book is an online group made up of people who are fascinated by Alaskan bears. The possibilities are endless. Whether it's they're interested in serving others, whether they're interested in nature, whether they're interested in brown bears in Alaska and form a community around that, which has led to Fat Bear Week. And share your thoughts and feelings in creative ways with other people who have that interest. And in that connection, in that interaction, which anyone can do, then you begin to reveal yourself, tell your story, share the unique things about you that matter, and then other people recognize that, share their story in return, and it's like an electric circuit is connected. Nobel says loneliness will never disappear. It's a universal emotion, and when feelings of loneliness arise, it's telling us something important to pay attention to. Everyone is lonely from time to time, almost everyone. The challenge isn't to avoid loneliness, but to see it as a signal. Just like thirst is a signal you need hydration, loneliness is a signal you need human connection. And to follow that signal. If you don't do that, if you don't get what you need, here's the big risk. You start withdrawing from the exact opportunities and interactions with others that could make you feel more connected. The goal of Project Unlonely is to help people recognize the signal and turn it around. Nobel says these activities are medicines that require no prescription. There's no copay for creating or conversing. They're a tonic that's much needed in modern life. Alice Naubry, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. Keeping you company, this is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. That's Anthony Brooks there talking about the inseparable link between you and us here at WBUR. There really is no you and us. We, it is all us. You are our partner. We are together. We make WBUR happen together. Yes, you are listening right now, and we are giving you what you need to know, but you make it possible. And this is when we remind you that we need you to act, especially right now, because We have three minutes to go in a triple match that is on the table. This is the most powerful thing maybe you can do on a Monday morning. It's a rare opportunity to have 
triple the impact that you would usually have. And I don't know about you, but in these like really frustrating times, I am always looking for impact and something I can control and something I can actually do to help people. And this is that. I'm Rupa Shanoi, a host of Morning Edition here with Jay Clayton, and we are in our year-end fundraiser. It is the home stretch. The fundraiser ends at the end of the day on Wednesday, but we still have 45% of our goal to raise. And this is a great time to do it because, again, there is a triple match for two more minutes until nine. And you just heard Anthony Brooks there. Think about what you get from WBR from people like Anthony Brooks, these voices that you know and trust. Recently, he did a series about people in their third act. These are people like who have a whole career and are maybe in an older place in their life and suddenly decide to do something very different and reinvent themselves. And also, Anthony is our guy in New Hampshire, and that is going to be so important with the presidential election coming up. He knows people on the ground. He is on the ground telling you what's going on there. And you know that is so close. We need people there with knowledge of the sources and what's going on. That's what you get here. That's what we keep in mind, what you need to know. We need your help right now when there is a triple match on the table. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's Jay. I mentioned a while ago that there was a $5,000 cap on this match, which we just met. So we want to keep it going. We're going to get another $2,500 from some other members of our Morrow Society. So they're going to triple your support. But again, as Rupa says, this match ends in just a couple of minutes one way or the other. So you got to jump in. This is when you can make the most of what you can give to WBUR. As someone who's part of the, the planning team for the fundraisers, Rupa, I can tell you there is no better opportunity than a triple match. So make the most of what you can give, whether it's $10 a month that turns into 30 whether it's $100 that turns into 300 whether it's $500 that turns into 1500 this is when your giving will have the biggest impact that it can have for WBUR. The last matching opportunity, uh, the last couple of minutes rather, of this matching opportunity is right now. So call 1-800-909-9287. That's 1-800-909-9287. You can also get in on the triple match when you give at WBUR.org. But this is it. The match is ending in a matter of seconds. Go to WBUR.org and thank you. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.